Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, y'all. I'm Taryn Finley, a senior culture reporter at HuffPost, and this is I Know That's Right, a weekly podcast about the latest in culture, entertainment, and trending conversations. Get ready, y'all, because we're going to a place where mainstream news and the wild west of internet culture collide. From the news that makes us say, I know that's right, to the mess you know is dead wrong. I'm breaking down the week that was, and we've got a lot to talk about. Then, as always, I'll be bringing in a guest for an in-depth conversation. And this week's guest is none other than Erica Alexander. She'll be joining me to talk about her new film, American Fiction. And she'll be getting real about what's owed to black actors in Hollywood. Whew. This is I Know That's Right. I Know That's Right. Happy New Year, y'all. I'm so glad to be kicking dusty ass 2023 out of here and starting a new, starting fresh with 2024. And now I don't want to jinx it. I know you're not supposed to say this. We learned this after 2020, but I have a really good feeling about this year. 2023 was weird to say the least and there was a lot of dead wrong that happened and it's still spilling into 2024 and I think because of that we need to do things a little bit differently for this first episode of 2024 to kick the year off right okay I'm all about positivity intention and really setting the tone for a new year so like any good new year's hopes and dreams and resolutions I have a list of three things that I'm looking forward to saying I know that's right to this year. Now, come with me. Come step into my dream sequence. Walk with me. Talk with me. Don't be afraid. We're going to hop into this and we're going to manifest some good things for this year. Starting off with something that I know is going to have us all saying I know that's right is Usher's Super Bowl performance during the halftime show on February 11th. Now, I'm sure some of you will be watching for the game. I'm maybe like 5% of you. Yeah, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but, you know, me and mine will be watching for the real show, the halftime performance. Usher is 45, y'all, and still performing like he's 25. After wrapping up a massively successful Vegas residency run, Usher Baby is going to be bringing the show to our living rooms. And I'm already just besides myself you know I can hear a medley of my way into you don't have to call into yeah into that whole little EDM uh phase that he had I wasn't mad at it I was mad at it then I'm not mad at it anymore now you know we need we need a little party vibes so we don't have details now on if he'll be bringing out a special guest or if he's going to be giving us a solo dola performance like Rihanna did but he did stop by the show for our premiere episode to tease a little bit about what we should expect. If you haven't listened to it, make sure you go back, go, go back to the very first episode, y'all very first November 8th and make sure you check out my interview with Usher. I, I don't know about y'all, but I might need a, I did this for Rihanna. I might have to do this for Usher and put on a special outfit while I'm tuning into his performance on my couch and act like I'm in Vegas or something. <laughs> Next up in 2024, I am going to be looking forward to the Olympics in Paris. Of course, I'm excited to see 
Simone Biles absolutely obliterate the competition in gymnastics. And it's looking like we'll get to see track superstar Shakari Richardson get her well-deserved chance to shine on the world stage. I'm, I'm so excited for that. I know that them and, and there's going to be new talent to look out for. I'm a sports girly sometimes, but I, I don't know what to expect. But I know that I know that I'm going to be getting my life from the girls. But I also have to give honorable mention to Snoop Dogg who will be reporting on the games for NBC. It's so random because Snoop just gets into random shit, uh, it, but it's also very on brand for him. He just gets into all types of things, which I kind of love. He commentated on the 2020 Olympics alongside Kevin Hart on Peacock, but this time Unk is moving to primetime and child, I don't know about y'all, but I hope that we at least get a few segments where Snoop is just high as a kite and giving us all of the real Snoop uncle. Like, I kind of want him to take us back to gin and juice a little bit. Just just a little bit for prime time. Just, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> the Olympics start on July 26th. Can't be in Paris, but, you know, we're going to be there in spirit. We're going to be there in spirit. Lastly, this one is a little bit more general and less guaranteed than the last two stories I mentioned, but I'm looking forward to saying I know that's right to more people of color in Hollywood speaking up about the inequality they're facing in the industry. Just this week, USC Annenberg's Inclusion Initiative released a report that found that major studios' pledges to diversify were performative. It's no surprise there at all. It's really no surprise there at all. The study found that only about 12% of the 116 directors attached to the 100 top grossing domestic films were women. That was only about a 3% improvement from 2022. And on top of that, only four women of color helmed the top grossing films of 2023. Three of those women were Asian and one woman was black. I'm not going to go down every stat in this study, but it's just further proof of something that we already knew. These numbers are so depressing and it's not limited to filmmakers. I mean, actors, crew, production, all, all the folks, hair, makeup, everyone is affected here. And this is why Siraji had this to say during the recent press run for The Color Purple. I'm just tired of working so hard being gracious at what i do getting paid a fraction of the cost mm -hmm. i'm tired of hearing my sister say the same thing over and over mm -hmm. um you get tired mm -hmm. i hear people go you work a lot yeah. well have to the math ain't mathing. This ain't the first time that she said something about this, and she's not the only one who said something about this. I feel like this is just a tale as old as Hollywood. Viola Davis, Monique, Sandra Oh, today's guest, Erica Alexander, and so many other talented actors have rang the alarm. And you would think that after last year's strike, studios will be making more of an effort towards parody and saying it loud and proud. But since that doesn't seem to be happening, I'm looking forward to people of color in Hollywood rocking the boat and speaking truth to power. Not only because what and who we see on the screen is important, but also because we know this kind of inequity is happening across the board, across industries. And there ain't nothing like a good old domino effect to level the playing field. Because if we're being really honest, Hollywood execs weren't the only ones making performative promises. Y'all could do so much better. In the meantime, can't wait to see more of the girls staying on y'all next. Well, I think that's a good spot to end this little remixed edition of the top stories that I'm looking forward to in 2024. I want to know, what are you looking forward to? Do you have a pop culture resolution? Do you have a resolution in general? Hit me up at underscore tearing it up and let's chit chat about it. Let's let's get into the nitty gritty. I want to know about your lives. I'm all ears. Next up, I'll be bringing in Erica Alexander to discuss her new film, American Fiction in the State of Hollywood for Black Actors. Keep it locked because more I know that's right is coming up. Hold up. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to I Know That's Right, y'all. Y'all, I am too excited for today's guest we're starting off 2024 strong with a hollywood legend in the building you may know her as cousin pam from the cosby show or maxine shaw attorney at law on living single or in her many other roles over the decades including last man standing black lightning get out and run the world she's a two-time NAACP winner and she's here to talk about her current role in court Jefferson's directorial debut American fiction let's give a big I know that's right to Erica Alexander how you doing Erica I'm doing great. Thank you, Taryn. It's glad. Uh, good to be on the show. Yeah. So I, I got to be honest with you for a second. This is a bucket list interview for me. I don't think we've ever had the pleasure of speaking. All right. I like to be on somebody's bucket list. I love it. <laughs> I love it, too. And congratulations are in order for you. Like it's it's been such a big, you know, year for you. You're fresh off of being nominated for Independent Spirit Award for yes. American Fiction. Your name is being brought up in talks of Academy Award nomination predictions. Earth Mama, which you played in, is nominated for a Spirit Award. There are a lot of big things going on over in Erica's world. And I, I thought it was really interesting that you recently told people that this is your first time in your 40 year career yes. that yes. your name is being mentioned in these kind of articles and that you're trying to stay present. It, it's really interesting to me because you're such a household name and an icon for us. And oh, I, like literally grew up watching you and you know over the years just have been such a huge fan of your work so to to see that I'm wondering what emotions are you feeling why you try to sit in this season of getting this kind of recognition especially as a vet and icon who's already put in so much work and paid her dues well it just shows you that they say it's not a sprint it's a marathon and life is that, especially this type of career as a creative inside of an industry that has been held back for so long in terms of gender and race and other things that can divide us. You kind of needed the world to resurrect itself and ask itself, was it really telling the full truth of who we are as human beings, especially here in America? We talk about we are the biggest culture makers in world history. African-Americans definitely are. And our number one export is entertainment and culture. And uh, it needed to change and evolve. And so in that way, my career has changed and evolved. The opportunities have changed and evolved. The idea that you could be noticed or have accolades and it all needed to change and evolve. And so there's new generation there as executives. There are new creative storytellers. There's people who've been there for a long time trying to break down these walls and these borders and now things are are changing and you know new changing of the guard so it's it's powerful and I'm, I'm glad to have lived through it and continue to thrive and and survive in it 
yeah, not only just live through it, but also, you know, be one of the key players to make sure that those doors open, you know. And so it was no surprise to me what to learn that Court Jefferson wanted you specifically for this role of Coraline in American Fiction. What were your initial thoughts in reading the script and what made you say yes to this opportunity? Court Jefferson is very compelling talent. He's a very accomplished writer. This is a little bit back to my roots. Drama and comedy are part of my roots. This has both. It's satire. So I think I'm made for the moment, but he needs to be made for the moment. He's a modern man. I'm feeling like I'm in a place in my life that I would hope to have these opportunities. I'm so glad to have started young enough to be, to still be in a, in a space where I have enough energy to take advantage of these opportunities. But it first needed him to... Uh, come through the ranks and he has a background as a journalist and he has a background as a late night writer and then a writer of, of Watchmen and won the the uh, Emmy with Damon Lindelof for that great thing that had reparations at its center. I'm just really glad that he asked me and that he came to me specifically because he thought I had something to contribute unique in this project. Yeah, absolutely. It feels so in line with your voice and your vision, you know, not only on screen, but also off screen. And I want to get into that later. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your character. You play opposite Jeffrey Wright's character as his monk and your Coraline begin their romance. We start to see how the impact that she has on him. He's introduced as, you know, like he is depressed and you know facing the kind of lumps that life is giving him I won't give any spoilers for those who who haven't watched but you know like his disposition is very grumpy and for good reason you know and we we get to see that shift when he meets Coraline which I thought was just so interesting what was it like creating this dynamic on screen with Jeffrey I'm wondering what those conversations were like between y'all in crafting y'all's on screen relationship well we didn't have any conversations about it I think that he knows that I um, come to this with a, a whole package full of experience. And so does he. And we were supposed to meet cute. So we did. Uh, um, Coraline drops the, the vegetables in her bag of groceries and he comes over and in a very, uh, you know, gentlemanly way helps her pick it up. And then they have wine and they talk and everybody gets to see that happen. It doesn't usually happen. That's kind of um and an act of resistance in itself is that you see two mature black characters meeting cute and having, it's not about lust. It's not that they're way past that. They're in their careers. Coraline is a lawyer and she's um, doing well in life, but she's had a divorce. She's gone through some things and she's not looking to play games. She doesn't want chaos. None of that. I don't think that Monk realizes that she's his perfect audience uh, his book had broken through to her. It brought him closer to the type of balanced life that he yearned for. She's part of that. She offers him like a, a, a life uh, jacket to take advantage of that life and uh, perhaps maybe do it together. It's about him deciding want to want to be on this journey. And right now he's having a real you know, conflict about um, his ambitions matching up to where he is now. And that is a mature conversation. So I'm really glad. I believe that Core Jefferson knew that we could be a good match and that we have good chemistry. And he was right about that. But for Coraline, who has reconstructed herself successfully and her equilibrium is very stabilized, she's willing to wager, take a bet and gamble on a curmudgeon like him. But truthfully, she's hoping that this new relationship will be worth the trip. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Monk is hiding this secret being that he is writing this book behind this synonym, a very different book than what Coraline, you know, as not only an, an audience, but also now her partner knows him for. So in a sense, there it, it feels like he's hiding this other piece of himself, even if it is this mask that, you know, is kind of covering his discontent. I'm wondering, especially, you know, that, that life jacket piece that you mentioned is so interesting, um, especially as, you know, Coraline is like fully realizing like, okay, I, I know what I want 
and I know what I don't want. I'm wondering how you see this dynamic reflected in the world and what you, you know, hope that like this kind of um, signals or what what audiences get from kind of their dynamic. Well, we're talking about people who are did not date on Tinder. They are not swiping right or left. (laughs) You're going to have to meet them. They want to do a sniff test. You know what I mean? Uh, They don't have time to waste either. Uh, So I do think that that's where the movie is a little different from the real actualities of dating uh, to newer generations who often don't have or meet the people they're going to to date or interested in um, unless they outright are are asking for a date and it's going to lead to something romantic and they've told them everything about themselves through an algorithm. We don't know. But I also think that I was thinking about the film through the vision and words of Sidney Poitier, who talks about the measure of a man that was in the name of his biography. And uh, Sidney talked about whether if he was looking at his life in hindsight is 2020, did it measure up? And that's how you take the measure of a man. You look at their decisions, not just what they say, their decision, does it add up? And certainly this movie is about identity. It's about love. It's about um, memory of a person's definition of success is often altered as we mature because we make concessions and we have uh, different evaluations based on health and um, opportunity and all those things. I don't think there's a human alive that doesn't go through those stages. I think it gives people an opportunity to think through the version of themselves, ask where they want to be. And if you've already gone through um, different stages to, to say, does it match up with what I what I wanted, I really happy. But I think that Monk's hunger for success is really eating away at him. I don't know if he's satisfied with the type of middling success or respect. He he wants more. If you're an artist, there's this mythical thing called crossing over. We all want that. We want the approval that comes from popular success, but we want the respect. And so this is a story about competing goods, not competing harms. It's just which one does he choose and what does it look like for him? She's part of that thing to say, this could be a good of what you've done. Like a teenager, he's at odds with it. He doesn't, he's not sure. And that's kind of odd to see a person as old as him not be sure. Yeah. As old and as established as him. Yeah. I, yes. I, I thought yes. that was just because like. They don't show that on TV. They always show that right. when you're a certain age, you know, you pass 35, 40, you better know what you want. And that's actually not true. So that's why I said he's he's still a young, young man, but he's past the age of asking those questions as the industry and culture tells you. But it shows you that you're never past those questions. You're always reaching for more. You can be discontented. You can feel like you haven't accomplished it and you're willing to make um, different decisions based on it. We just don't know if it'll measure up in the end. Mm, absolutely. I think this film has such a profound way of showing how the mask that we're given. I, I think that like oftentimes we aren't shown grace or mm. even given ourselves grace for picking up that mask and putting it on as if everything around us as if society hasn't conditioned us to see this mask as home you know and I I just thought that like the themes that you know really challenge not only the stereotypes that non-black people uphold but also the stereotypes that we enforce within our own communities like how they really play out in in such a smart way and you've been so outspoken throughout your career about your pride for the culture and about your place in Hollywood and in in the vision that you have and I'm wondering um, to your point if there was a moment in this film that especially was profound for you or a moment that you learned from and you know kind of made you say huh I think it's profound a bit to find myself after 40 years in the business, having never had the opportunity to work with these types of established performers. I think it's profound. And I saw through Cord's work that it took so much to make this. It was deemed as a risk. Can you ever look at Jeffrey Wright and think he's risky? I don't think I'm a risk. We've had to put up or shut up. And if we've gone this far, it's not because of bad behavior that's pushed us forward. It's only because we played by the rules and more importantly, hopefully stood and delivered. But yet 
with all of that, and you can list the cast list from all these powerful performers who've achieved so much and raised billions of dollars for this industry together, that we're seen as a risk on a low-budget film. That's what's profound for me, that as much as I think that we've advanced, and sometimes because I'm also a co-founder of Color Farm Media, I think I must be the only one having this uh, this experience, the frustration. And then you find out that everyone is still. It's frustrating. And yet I said, there's got to be another way. And so for all the people from Jordan Peele to Ava DuVernay to Steve McQueen, all of these people um, recognize the potential of a great story and they're contributing growth and development and all that. And it's very satisfying. But they really have to have the courage of their convictions. They really because they have an amazing pipeline of overqualified, undervalued talent to choose from. But I understand that it's not easy to come out and play because what you're thinking is you want to make sure that if you survive this much mediocrity, <laughs> then you want to contribute your talents and skills to someone who knows what to do with it and has the courage not to fall for popularity versus impact because we need impact so we can become popular. But again, in this culture, we are the most powerful culture makers in the world, in the world history, the 13 percent. That's a fact. If you if you create jazz, rock and roll, blah, 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 you are the center of all athletics and all of these things. And you're still a risk. You tell me what's really acting and reacting. And that's a shame. I'm glad it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough. And I would not be satisfied with just this. Mm. Mm. If that isn't a mic drop, then I don't know what it is. I I love the sharpness and clarity that you speak with around this. And, you know, uh, for me, I've, I've been covering Black news and culture for 10 years professionally. The things that I saw in not light bulb, but the like, yes, that I shouted in that theater when I when I watched American Fiction months ago, which is something that, like you said, it isn't new to us, but the fact that it's here and it's on wax, I, I do wonder what you hope Hollywood heeds from um, American Fiction. And do you believe that your hopes from that will be realized? Well, I hope Hollywood understands this is not a mirage. This is not an isolated incident. There's plenty of major creators out there who are undervalued and underfunded, and they need to be supported. Core Jefferson is an amazing creator. I mean, he's genius, was recruiting performers, I believe, and other collaborators that um, are individuals themselves. Uh, I think mostly, if you looked at most of us, we'd be called classically character actors. But we're also tremendous leading players. Uh, we, we are people who understand that we're great soloists. If you turn to us and ask us to do, you know, a Thelonious Monk or a Miles Davis or a blah, blah, blah there, you did it. But also that know how to be an ensemble, know how to sing with others and create an ensemble and not get lost. But we're often asked to emote these huge things and it makes characters of us all victims of our own success. You know, I think that as African-Americans were told often how black people are supposed to act. Those mostly are caricatures of things that we had to portray in order to be successful. I think that you see a real discussion about it because you see two parallels, the, the, the coat, the mask that Jeffrey puts on as Monk to play, meaning the character himself. Then there's Monk in the film, who is a, an author again, a professor. And then there's Stagger Lee, that he has to be in order to build this type of success in a world that sees him as a stereotype. And I want to give you one example that I don't think people really thought about, but this is great. There's a time when he says, set, he sits down to have a discussion with uh, his nemesis played by Issa Rae. And he comes and he shakes his salad. It's a little annoying that he's shaking his salad. Have you ever seen a black man shake their salad in a movie before? <laughs> no. Exactly. Court knows that we shake our salads, too. Now, watch this. He goes then to see the movie producer and he walks into the restaurant 
and he's walking regularly. Then he suddenly hunches his shoulder. And in one gesture, this is how this is how powerful of an actor he is. With one gesture, he becomes the thug. And suddenly we see how sort of muscular uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright is. And he becomes more of that character we saw, uh, Peoples. I, I just Peoples. And he brings all of that to bear because we've seen him in other movies. But also we have no problem thinking he's an intelligent dude who shakes his salad and does that and says, oh, excuse me. That's a genius bit of acting. And it's so subtle. But Core needed to write it. That's who we are. We're the yin and the yang. And we need to have the courage to make sure that we show that and not just what we think will get over because it's popular or that's necessary. But we also need people to support that. There's plenty of people pitching every day and they won't let it pass the gates. We need new gatekeepers. But we also need new gates. Yeah, absolutely. I think no it's, so, it's so OK to look, Don't tear worry. the gates down, tear them down. OK, like Khaleesi. I, she just <laughs> the wheel, baby. She said she don't want it. She want to break the wheel. That's important. Hello. Hello. I think it's so criminal that this, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is Jeffrey Wright's first lead role in a film. Second. He Second. Played, he played uh, the great um, Basquiat, John Basquiat. You know what you were saying to when you were saying it's criminal. It is criminal because what we did is we missed his most virile moment of youth mm. a leading man you want, mm. them, you want to see them um how they would uh, act as a, a sexual partner or a romantic lead you want to see them take all that power that he has when he's in his prime and you know and, and bring it to bear he's still in his prime thank goodness for us the thing is we've lost a lot of those years many of those years and many careers um not allowing people to flourish. And I think that black men in particular have lost those years because they were used as thugs or they were used as only sort of the uh, sort of bizarre idea of a mandingo <laughs> had to have scenes, you know what I mean? That were always tied to this hyper masculine thing, not the beauty or the gentleness of walking through the Everglades, eating ice cream cones. Like, you know, you see in so many beautiful romantic comedies, with people like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. We did that from great Jeffrey Wright. We certainly need it from Erica Alexander, the great. Hello, <laughs> hello. No, and absolutely, because and really shame on Hollywood for dragging its feet and in, in being so late. And, you know, it takes a court Jefferson and it takes, you know, like so many amazing, you know, black uh, directors and filmmakers filmmakers who are stepping up now and you know creating their own path Hollywood really it's just this microcosm for society but at the same time it's a reflection and a big impact on how we continue to perpetuate these stereotypes I think about I talk about this in my group chats with my good girlfriends all the time about you know the ways that we have to in order to like reach certain things or live a, a certain way it has to be upon a condition to water ourselves down to to be this thing and and how we're trying to you know break past that and fight past that but even down to you know how we talk about perfect example living single versus friends <laughs> and how we saw how we knew back then we knew that living single was it and we saw what was happening with friends, but it took decades later for that to really be called out and acknowledged and still not even to the extent of what time has already passed. But, but I do wonder, you know, to what extent you believe these conditions that society has placed on black people to be successful or to live and, and, you know, achieve how much has of that has impacted your career as an actor specifically? It's impacted my career very much. So many years lost to it being lost in the wilderness. I wasn't the only one after the nineties sort of spat of very successful sitcoms and family shows, they disappeared in the two thousands and we didn't have, an, and we hadn't had, a lead dramatic performer, uh, female performer and or male, frankly, 
in a um, in a primetime show since Diane Carroll until Kerry Washington and Scandal. That's 50 years. So if you think about it, I have a 40 year career cinema. You know, as we know, American cinema has only been around for 100 years. 2023 is its 100th year. I've been around for almost half of that. If you can ask how it impacted, you can easily see that for the breadth of my career, there was very few things that anyone could do or felt they could do by themselves. It would have to be a sea change in how America saw itself. Entertainment is not divorced from the legislations passed in local local cities, certainly not national either or global. We're all tied together. And it can seem that way because people love to see Hollywood as this little enclave or island. But what you see is a reflection of culture, the stories we tell. If we don't tell those stories, that's a reflection of culture. You know, that's a reflection of the world, a reflection of America. And again, if we're exporting the most culture in the world, then what we say matters and what we don't say doesn't exist matters. I'm glad to be having these conversations so people like Corey Hawkins or say um, Danielle Brooks will have different ones. Everyone had to, you know, had a certain amount of sacrifice and and heartbreak in being a part of something and seeing their years go as, you know, in this industry, you often play your age. And as long as we can look, uh, you you mature past certain things. Um, you just hope that you can meet them again. So I may have never been Juliet on TV, certainly on stage. I've had my years of ingenue, but um, I get to be an ingenue, a mature ingenue in in uh, in American fiction. I get to be the object of desire. I get to be the thing that that um, that he desires too. And we're having that conversation in a, in a beautiful way. And you can see also the skin colors that he mixed and matched in there are beautiful. He did the family exactly as we know black families. Sterling is the brother to Jeffrey Wright. And we've seen families where a dark skinned man is next to a light skinned man. And they're all family, full blood. And we've had that within our DNA all this time. And there's the great Leslie Uggams. Let's give props to her, who's been in showbiz for 74 years. That means she's been in it a three quarters of its existence. Let her tell her stories. They're unreal. She told them to us. I shared a green room with her and a dressing room with her and got to listen and sit at her feet. But I also got to listen at the feet of Cecily Tyson and Felicia Rashad and Whoopi Goldberg. They've all made me. They've all made sacrifices and watch their careers not go the way they wanted to. We don't have any Emmys for the great Felicia Rashad for Cosby Show. You tell me. I'm not complaining about anything because, again, all of this is a bonus. I didn't I didn't depend on this. I depended on people seeing past that and giving me opportunities. That's what's happened of all different colors and races. And it continued to happen. And we will we will tear the walls of Jericho down. Mm. So uh, you have just such a way of words and a such a again, a sharp and clear way of seeing what's going on and saying it verbatim. I mean, you know, even not only just for sake of your art, but for sake of what's going on in the world, you're outspoken about Palestine on social media. You highlight the urgency to find missing black women on your podcast, finding Tamika. I mean, for Christ's sake, you have a, won a prestigious journalism award. Because of that, you know, you constantly uplift and amplify diverse voices with your platform, Color Farm, which you mentioned earlier. How much weight do you assign to your responsibility, not only be an actor, but also to be an advocate and speak truth to power in the way that you do? I don't think I've earned the right to sit on the sideline. I look at the sacrifices our ancestors collectively made from people like the great Harriet Tubman to John Brown. And they gave their lives to the movement. They gave their livelihood to the movement. And the movement is human being, not just a man. It's the right to be human and be. And if you have a platform or a voice that is so tied to image and how that is, then I think it's necessary for you to do it. Not everybody wants to or should, is qualified or, uh, you know, we have to educate yourself. 
you know, and I'm trying every day to read and and be instructed and and um, guided by people like Reverend Barber of the Poor People's Campaign and the repairs of the breach, um, John Lewis and um, the, many of my heroes, my Angela. I've met some of these people and again, learned from them, but they left their blueprint. Many of them, they, they left it in music. Marvin Gaye, you knew what he thought about what's going on. How am I? I sent up here on the sideline when it's they've given so much and lost careers. Muhammad Ali lost the best time of his life. And then he proved that it wasn't over till it was over. I'm sorry. I'm doing what I was taught to do by not only ancestors, but, but people who made it possible for me to be doing it. So um, I just express my gratitude and trying to continue that legacy, but also, um, I want to show others that it doesn't have to harm you. There's nothing to be afraid of, but words can be weapons and they do have power. So people need to teach themselves about issues and be willing to have the courage of their convictions if they believe things to be so. Get into good trouble if necessary. I do want to pivot and, you know, talk a little bit more about living single, especially since 2023 was the 30th anniversary. And, you know, with streaming, folks are able to rewatch, discover, fall asleep each night to it as my good home girl does every night <laughs> as her comfort <laughs> show. Tell her I say thank you. Definitely. But more importantly, people are able to continue to see themselves in a Khadijah, a Regine, a mm-hmm. Maxine, a Sinclair. Hell, I'll even throw in the men, Kyle and Overton. Like, what significance does that hold for you, especially in the season that you stand in right now? Well, thank you again. It was and is the 30th anniversary of Living Single. Can't believe so many much time has passed, but I also feel it. I'm gratified to see that a character I played 30 years ago has had such an impact and resonated to people like Stacey Abrams and Marilyn Mosby and and Ayanna Presley and many judges and uh, people in leadership positions, executive positions. They've come up to me and said that they've gone into those careers because of the inspiration of and from that character specifically. They've tried to tell me, did I, did I know how much it mattered? And I believe them because I see what they have achieved in real life, I only imagine in R-E-E-L life. So they're the real deal. <laughs> and But I do think you need things to work together sometimes. I think they would have always been those people. But it's really much better if you can have a connection. They say if you must see it, uh, believe it, to see it, to believe it, or to do it. or And that's actually not true. Black people have often done things and not seen it. Uh, I think all people have, human beings have, but someone has to at least put a spark of imagination that you could achieve it. And so hats off to Yvette Lee Bowser, who created the show, was the first black woman to create a primetime show. And then from then after, people who followed after, from our Rockakil to the great Shonda Rhimes. When Yvette was doing that, uh, she had people who she, who guided her. And so I think it's wonderful when you know, your peanut butter meets my chocolate. Boom, explosion. So thank you for the real people. And thank you for all the people who made Think Single a success. We couldn't do it without our audience who kept us on even another year when they wanted to take us off, even though we were the number one show in Black and Latino households the entire time. Say that. Look, drop all the receipts because they're there. They they are there. Okay, I want I, I do wonder how often y'all have y'all own, you know, living single reunion. I know y'all got a group chat. We do. That we do have. Um and uh, maybe not not really much because everyone's so busy doing things and we live in different places. Um our goal is to do something like that. But um You'd be surprised how quickly time and flies and it's a beast. So I'd be interested to see what happens in the next few years, but there's going to be more to come and not the same. It's it's we need to reimagine how uh, we see ourselves in the world and it can be connected to something that we previously done, but it has to be reimagined so it can be fresh, a little familiar because you see our faces and we'll be older, but we'll see what happens. 
Oh, okay. So you you you're talking more so about like uh the cause for reboots and and stuff like that. I'm you, well. You might call it a reboot. I just call it like let's see what happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I hear that. I hear that. I, I also would be really really remiss to not bring up you know how the strike impacted you. I mean. Run the World got canceled, which I'm sick about. I don't know if that is directly related to the strike or what, but I do want to know like how you've seen personally and also industry-wide Black creators impacted by the strike. Well, the strike certainly wasn't helpful for um, supporting a, a, a nation show like Run the World, but neither was the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. suddenly <laughs> met another brick wall and then the brick wall meets the cliff and and it's gone. Um, what also changed was the uh, the business model uh, they were using failed. Um, they needed to go back to an ad supported um, too many streaming platforms, not enough viewers and subscription uh, seekers. There's a lot of things that happened that were going to happen um, eventually. I also think that we need people who understand that the market needs time to find you with all this chatter. And often past your first subscription um, that you might get bump from any one show, you know, trail off. But how you build real audience and loyalty is continuing to give them the, uh, the episodes. If you, they come back after one season or two and it's gone, then people get that. They see that it's disposable a little bit. So they don't get, they don't, you don't build loyalty. But the reason why we had, uh, bigger audiences wasn't just because there were less things on it's because they could guarantee that a good show would be supported often. Now there's plenty of people would say, that's not true, Erica. A lot of people, a lot of things ate the dust. That is true. But I think the opportunity is for, have, for them to have courage and say, this is a good show. We believe in it. We're going to invest in it. And then the audience not only finds it, but they tell friends and people are allowed to come back and not have to guess whether their favorite characters are there. It's difficult to say how much it impacted me or my life. I am a producer and a director and was doing all sorts of other things in between, but I partly started doing that because of the lack of work before then. So, you know, people say, how did it impact you? Did it impact you? I said, no, I try not to pay attention to things that I can't control. And that's been most of my life in this industry. I try to think, think of the things I can control, like writing a comic book, creating a graphic novel, you know, doing a podcast, cast with Charlemagne the God and Kevin Hart and then doing Finding Tamika and then I just keep it moving refreshing my own you know life and career in that way I, I love how much you big up um, newer generations I'm wondering if there are there's any new talent that you have your eye on that you you know are rooting for would love to work with all of that I love Kiki Palmer God bless her I love yes. Kiki and she's so free and beautiful I worked with her when we were younger uh and she was younger. I played her mother. She was my daughter then. So it's good to see her. I love the a lot of the musical talent that's coming out of Africa, the Afrobeats. I love the possibility of what's happening all the way around the world with that mashup. I I really love Danielle Brooks and Fantasia. All the women of color purple are fantastic. They're 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 no joke. And and hats off to them. I've seen a lot of great Broadway plays. Miles. Frost as MJ, he did something phenomenal. He did something extraordinary. He played, he didn't imitate Michael Jackson. He played Michael Jackson as Miles Frost. That is no joke. Miles Frost is great. Aramee, he was uh, also played understudy uh, in that and was a phenomenal part of that show. He's great. There's some really great talent in that show, especially young males. Go see it. All the Wu-Tang kids, amazing. Love them all. Elijah uh, Martinez, Julian Eliza Martinez is great. Um, I love Ashton. I love Sadiq Saunderson. I love um, Dave East. He'll be a phenomenal talent. So I'm looking forward to all of that happening. Shamik Moore as Spider-Man, but also in the Wu-Tang, killed. You know, there's so much really great things happening in, 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 inside of speculative fiction as well. I just want to big up those people. They're the younger generation, but there's tons of people past the age of consent and 50 that are new talents in terms of whether we've mined their talent and they are ready and they are rested and they're, let's give them a shot too. 
let's find whether they're in the mountains of Appalachia or, you know, the uh, mountains of Arizona, like I was found. Before I get you out of here, I have to wrap it back around to where we started with this conversation, because the season that you are in is just amazing. You beyond deserve the accolades and the attention and the praise. But what would you call this season that you're in if you were to give it a name? The third Reconstruction. I get that from the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. He imagines the third reconstruction that Martin Luther King started when he started the Poor People's Campaign. Fusion politics, also fusion culture, where we look at our collective good and we aim for a target together because we are stronger together. And the idea is that after the first reconstruction, which was after the um, end of slavery, um, that was put to an end because uh, then uh, Lincoln died and they put in Jim Crow. And we didn't get another bite of the apple until after the civil rights era started. And then that ended because of the assassination of Martin Luther King and many of its leaders. But we are now in the third reconstruction. That means if you can hear my voice, you are an architect of the third reconstruction and you have an opportunity to not only build, but to tear down. And as we tear down walls, whether it's prejudice, bias, racism, patriarchy, all those things, and lend ourselves toward a vision of the world where we respect the climate and a climate of peace too, out of danger of war and resolving ourselves and our our conflicts through diplomacy. That if you can hear this voice, then you are an architect of that and there's an opportunity at hand. So we are architects of a cultural third reconstruction or maybe the first real construction together. Erica Alexander the Great, indeed, you are amazing. I learned so much from this amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I hope your 2024 is amazing. Um, as we sign off, is there a piece of pop culture? Thank you now, because you're part of that reconstruction. I'm directly talking to you. If not for new media ventures, also media makers who are on the cusp of telling the stories and also elevating, we can do nothing. So you are the Marines in it. And I salute you. Thank you so much. I'm saluting you back. Look, I, I bowed for a second. You know, I'm, look, a salute. It, it's a salute. It's a salute. <laughs> Thank you. Salute you too. Yes. Is there a, a piece of pop culture that you can share with the folks that's getting you through the week? Well, you know what? It is pop culture to get your Spotify list of what you listen to for the whole year and find out how you listen to music. And so my number one song on that list was Earth, Wind & Fires in the Stone. Mm. written in the stone and um, that's how I feel like this is written in stone somewhere we just got to believe it to achieve it there it is there it is thank you so much thank you All right, y'all, that's the show. Huge thank you to Erica Alexander for joining me this week. And thank you all for listening, y'all. We we made it. We made it to another year. Who would have thought? As always, I want to know what y'all want to hear on the show. So if there's a topic or story you want me to explore, hit me up at underscore tearing it up. This show is produced by Acast and recorded in Brooklyn. Until next time, see ya.